Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and from Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And they happened and they had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. A magazine article several years ago noted that we're seeing a dramatic spike in the popularity of astrology. And it noted in this article that the, the popularity of astrology seems to coincide with the decline of organized religion and the rise of political and economic instability. It noted that in August of 1930, the first uh, astrology newspaper column was commissioned in August of 1930, right after the major stock market crash. After the financial collapse of 2008, Astrologists were receiving phone calls from Wall Street bankers. Rebecca Gordon, an astrologer, said this, all those structures that people had relied upon, 401ks and everything started to fall apart. That's how a lot of people get into it. They're like, what's going on in my life? Nothing makes sense sense. In times of instability, the human heart turns to something. In times of instability or time of need, the human heart turns to something. What is that something? To what does your heart turn when you're faced with a season of instability? 
or a season of need. In Acts chapter 14, Paul takes all the possible things that you could turn to and he reduces them into two categories, empty things and the living God. We're gonna explore both of those and then we're gonna ask the question, how do you know when you're turning to empty things or the living God? How do you discern the difference? First, empty things. So one option you have in time of need is to turn to empty things. Paul, in verse 15, calls them vain things, and vain just means empty. He says that you should turn from these vain things. Now, what are the vain things that Paul is talking about? Well, to answer this, you have to understand this story of Zeus and Hermes. Where does it come from? So Paul arrives in this city of Lystra. He begins preaching, and he sees a man who has, is crippled in his feet, who has been crippled since birth, who has never walked. But as he's teaching, he sees this man looking intently at him. He sees him listening intently. He can tell that this man is responding to Paul's message. He sees faith rising up in him, and so he says to the man, get up and walk. So the man jumps to his feet and begins walking. The crowds are amazed for obvious reasons. This man's never walked before. It's the response of the crowd to this miracle that's very interesting and honestly quite strange. Verse 11. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now we read these verses and go, what in the world? That is just strange. That's weird. What is going on? Why did this happen? It's actually not that surprising if you understand the cultural story of what was happening in Lystra. Because there was a cultural, mythological story that was well-known in this city and that was widely believed. What was this story? Well, there was a book, well-known book, written in 8 AD by a Roman poet named Ovid in which he basically chronicled the history of the world from creation to Julius Caesar, and he did it in somewhat of a mythological sense, somewhat within a historical framework, kind of a, a mix of it all. Paul's visit to Lystra happened in the mid-40s. So this is about 30 years after this book came out. And it's in this book that there's a mythological story about the city of Lystra. Zeus, the greatest of gods, and Hermes, who was the god's spokesman, paid a visit to this valley near Lystra. And they went from house to house or home to home, but they kept being refused and rejected. Nobody would take them in until finally this, this elderly couple, husband's name was Philemon, wife Bacchus, took Zeus and Hermes into their home. They stayed the night. The next morning, these gods took this 
couple out of the city, out of the valley, up onto a mountaintop, and when they looked back, the valley had been flooded. Judgment had been poured out. Everyone had died. So, when the people of this town that knew this cultural story really well see Paul and Barnabas come and perform this miracle, inevitably they think, oh goodness, Zeus and Hermes are back. The gods are back to visit us, and guess what? We don't want to offend them this time. We don't want to reject them this time because we don't want our town flooded again. We don't want judgment. We don't want to be consumed. And so now this explains verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Zeus was thought to be the protector of the city. So if indeed Zeus and Hermes had come to visit them in human form, they're thinking, we have got to roll out the red carpet because we don't want to get flooded again. We don't want to get judged again. So we're going to bring gifts and sacrifices. We're going to roll out the red carpet. We're going to appease them so that they bless us and not curse us. This explains what's happening. Now, before you dismiss, and you still say this is just really strange. Before you dismiss this as an archaic first century mythological story, let me share with you an example from today that has a very similar um, ethos of spiritualism that will help you connect this strange story in the first century to today. Just an example. New book came out a few years ago, 2019, by D.W. Pasolka. She's the department chair of philosophy and religion at the University of North Carolina. The title of this book is American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology. And it's in this book that she explores how the belief and fascination with UFOs and with aliens is developing into a somewhat sizable world religion. Research shows that at least 35% of people believe that we've been visited by extraterrestrials in the past, that at least a quarter of people now believe that that's actively happening now. And it's in this book that she says this, there are signs that alien belief is poised to become one of the world's ethical religions. Alien beliefs often implicate the world in wickedness and call for repentance. Many accounts of alien contacts include calls for an end to war, an increase in peaceful human cooperation. Anna Merlin, she's a, a, an American journalist specialized in politics and religion. She also wrote a book a couple years ago, 2019, title of it, Republic of Lies. Americans conspiracy theorists. She devotes an entire chapter to the psychology behind UFO conspiracies that are, that are on the rise, that are finding life. She says this, the intensity, depth, and breadth of the conversation about aliens throughout the world says something profound about human hopes, about our desire to not be alone in the universe, about our wish for some wise and mysterious force out there in the farthest reaches of space that is ready to show us the way. UFO enthusiasm coexists with a certain degree of New Age spirituality. There's a sense that extraterrestrials don't just exist, 
but that they will someday reveal to us a better way to live, a higher state of being. Now, some of you are engaged in that, that kind of spiritualism. Some of you aren't. And some of you hear that and go, that's just crazy. And in your heart, there's a, there's a judgment that can rise up about who, who would believe such a thing. But let me, let me draw a common ground here. A common ground heart condition that produces that. You may not deify, when I say deify, I mean make God-like. You may not deify aliens. You may not treat them like gods. But you do deify your career. You treat your, God, you treat your career like it's a god. Or you deify people. You treat people like they are gods. Or you deify money. You treat money like it's a god. Or you deify pleasure. You treat pleasure like it's a god. Paul, in this passage, lumps all of this, whether it's UFOs, aliens, horoscopes, astrology, palm readings, a career, people, money, or pleasure. He lumps it all together and calls it vain or empty things. And here is the truth and the common ground of turning to these empty things, though we've just named a whole spectrum of them. There's a common ground of how we interact or turn to these empty things. And we see this common ground in how the people of Lystra relate to these gods, Zeus and Hermes. Right? They bring a sacrifice to get these gods to bless them and not curse them and not flood them again. Right? Gods exist to bless or to curse, and the way you get a god to bless you is to bring gifts, to buy them, to win them over. Right? And so, you know, Pasolka in her book talks about this kind of new wave of what would be called deifying aliens or you know, that kind of worship. She says it has all the indicators of religion. They build um, sacred sites. So you, you, you sacrifice time. You sacrifice money right, to, to get these gods to bless you. If we're talking about career as a god, if we're talking about career as a god, you sacrifice time. You spend really long hours and sacrifice potentially your family to get this God to bless you, called career, to bless you. When you turn to empty things, you always sacrifice in an attempt to get that empty thing to bless you or to give you what you want. And that sacrifice either is you or someone else. Someone pays whether it's you or people around you, someone pays when you turn to an empty thing, a God, to try to bless you. So the question is, what empty thing are you turning to in your time of need or your time of instability? And who are you sacrificing to get this empty thing? to bless you? That's the question that you have to answer. 
And this brings us to the second option you have in time of need. So there's turning to empty things. But second, there's the option of turning to the living God. Turning to the living God. When Paul and Barnabas understand what these people of Lystra are doing, verse 14 says, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Now, it took them a while to do this. Why? Well, it says that when they, uh, when they healed this man and the crowd saw it, they started speaking in Lyconian, that these are gods. You know, Zeus and Hermes are back. They were speaking in Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas didn't speak that. They didn't know that language. They spoke in Greek. That was the universal language of the day. So Paul and Barnabas hear this you know, foreign language they're speaking in, but they seemed impressed. They seemed by what they were saying. So initially, Paul and Barnabas were like, this is going great. They're very impressed with what's happening here. They, they heard my message and this is, you know. But then when they are walking through the street and they see the crowds bringing animals to sacrifice to them, they realize, okay, we've got a problem here. And it's at this point that Paul explains the difference between the empty things and the living God. And the way he explains the difference is by highlighting the goodness of the living God who, verse 15, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He highlights two characteristics of God's goodness. Two characteristics. The first, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself, leave himself without witness. These are a people, the people of Lystra, that had no knowledge of the scriptures. And what you notice here is when Paul is sharing with them, he doesn't quote Old Testament, which one chapter earlier in Acts 13, that's all he did when he was speaking to the Jews and the Gentiles who worshiped in the synagogues. He was quoting them Old Testament scripture. He doesn't do that here because these are a people that had no knowledge of the scriptures, absolutely no knowledge of the scriptures. And the emphasis he makes here is that in past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. What's that mean? Well, three chapters later in Acts 17, Paul's gonna be speaking to a very similar group of people that had no knowledge of the scriptures. And it's in Acts 17.30 that he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. That's the parallel of he let the nations walk in their own ways. Times of ignorance he overlooked. Paul describes this in Romans 3.25 when he says, because in his God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God's goodness is seen in his delayed judgment, his forbearance that he delayed for many centuries, he delayed judgment on his people until he could pour out judgment on his own son. This is the distinction. This is the difference between empty things and the living God. To avoid judgment for your sin with an empty thing, you have to pay, you have to sacrifice to get that God to bless you. To avoid judgment for your sin with the living God, you don't pay. God pays. And he paid by putting his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. 
as a sacrifice for your sin. You don't pay, but you have to receive Christ's sacrifice on your behalf as a gift. When you are turning to empty things, you have to pay. When you're turning to the living God, he pays. And that is unbelievable goodness and kindness of the character of God. But there's a second characteristic here of the goodness of the living God that sets the living God apart from empty things and empty gods. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says to these people in Lystra, who had no knowledge of the scriptures, no knowledge of the one true God, he says to them, God has revealed himself to you and he has been so good to you. He's been so good to you. He's given you rain for your crops. Big agricultural society. He's given you rain for your crops so that they could bear fruit so that you could be satisfied with food and gladness. Note that, food and gladness. Why does food taste good? You ever thought about that question? Why? I mean, God could have set it up to where he just gives you a pill that gives your body all the nutrients it needs so you can live. Why doesn't a 16-ounce ribeye at Texas Roadhouse taste like cardboard? Why doesn't the shrimp and grits plate at North Beach Fish Camp taste like dirt? Why doesn't a warm chocolate chip cookie with a large glass of milk actually taste good. I'm giving you all my, my tastiness, desires. But why? Why does food taste good? Why did God create food to taste good? For your enjoyment and delight. Those of you that have had COVID, that lost your sense of taste, I bet that was a season where when you got it back, you appreciated being able to taste food again. God makes food taste good for your goodness, for your enjoyment, and for your delight. I love how John Calvin, he was a French pastor in the 1500s. He sums it up this way. God gives many things of value apart from their usefulness. So let's get rid of the inhuman philosophy which only allows necessities. Not only does it wrongly deprive us of legitimate enjoyment of God's generosity, but it cannot be affected without depriving man of all his senses, reducing him to a block. And here's what's amazing about the generosity of God. You get to enjoy it in the form of the example of food that we just talked about. You get to enjoy it whether you believe in him or not. Whether you know him or not, you get the enjoyment and the delight of food. 
This is what sets empty things, empty gods apart from the living God. If you want any joy or delight from an empty God, guess what? You gotta pay up. And yet God, the living God, gives you enjoyment and delight in these common things, food as an example, whether you worship him, acknowledge him, or thank him or not. And that is just so, if you're here and you don't know God, you don't acknowledge him, you don't thank him, I'll just tell you, he has been so good to you. He has been incredibly good to you. The next time you eat something that you really like, that is the evidence that he's been really, really good to you. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Because when we get below that, to the ultimate picture of him giving us something we don't deserve, it is his son, Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, while we weren't acknowledging him, while we were cursing him, while we were walking away from him, he sent Jesus to die for you so that you could come to know him. God is good. He's been good to you. He's been gracious to you. He's been kind to you. And that's what sets him apart from the empty things that you turn to. So last question, how do you know if you're turning to empty things or if you're turning to the living God? How do you know? We're gonna answer this by looking at how the people of Lystra respond and how Paul responds. Let's start with the people of Lystra. How do they respond to Paul healing this man, delivering his teaching? How do they respond? Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, the Jews stirred up the crowd, including the, the people of Lystra, for sure. But these people of Lystra were also offended. They were offended that Paul and Barnabas didn't receive their sacrifices. They probably started to feel foolish, resentful. But here's the question. How do they go from euphoric worship of Paul to stoning him minutes later? You say, how does that happen? How in the world does something like that happen and turn so quick? When a man made God, which is an empty thing, right? When a man made God doesn't give you what you want or what you are looking for, what do you do? Initially, you usually sacrifice more, right? You'll, you'll, you'll just try to give more or sacrifice more to get this empty thing to give you what you want. But eventually, when it doesn't come, you, you murder it. You murder it. That's exactly what happened in Lystra. Right? Initially, after Paul tells them to turn from these vain things to the living God, what's verse 18 say? They, kept, they just kept trying. 
Maybe they sacrificed more. We'll bring more. We'll bring more. You know, just receive, receive, right? And then when it became clear they weren't going to do that, then they turned to murdering Paul, trying to by stoning him. Imagine you have, give you an example. Imagine that you have functionally deified a person, meaning that you, you are treating a person like they are God. And you're wanting that person to notice you. You're wanting that person to affirm you. How do you go about getting that to happen, to get what you want out of that person that you've deified? Well, you might buy them a gift. Or you might sacrifice your time to meet a need that they have. Or if it's a boss at work, you might just put in a lot of hard work and a lot of extra hours. Now, what happens when they don't notice you? What happens when they don't affirm you? Well, initially, you might buy them another gift. You might sacrifice some more time to meet another need they have. Your boss, you might just say, well, I'll work another week of late hours, whatever it might take. But if they still don't notice you, what do you do? You murder them in your heart. Give them the silent treatment, abandon them, slander them. That's what we do when a man-made God doesn't give us what we want. Anger, resentment, bitterness are all evidence that you have turned to empty things in time of need. So what's the evidence that you've turned to the living God? What's the evidence you've actually turned to the living God? How does Paul respond to all this? Well, initially he's left for dead. He's either semi-conscious or he's completely unconscious, dragged out of the city, left for dead. He wakes up, what's he do? <laughs> he gets up and he goes to another city called Derby and preaches the gospel some more. And then, it says sometime later, he comes back to Lystra. He comes back to the place where he was stoned. And when he comes back, he comes back to encourage the disciples, to strengthen them in their faith. You say, where's the anger? Where's the resentment? Where's the, the bitterness, the vengefulness? I mean, they just about killed him. They stoned him to almost death. Where's the anger? If comfort was one of Paul's gods, then you would have seen all of that. you would have seen all of that. The irony of this is that Paul went from being the one who was stoning back in Acts chapter seven. He was the one stoning Stephen, doing exactly what the people of Lystra just did to him. And now he's the one being stoned because they're angry and his response is not one of anger. He says something really insightful to the people who had witnessed his stoning in verse 22 saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul expected discomfort. It wasn't a surprise to him. It was part of the calling of Christ. Paul writes in other places, Romans 8, 17, 
fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Galatians 6, 17, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. No doubt that included the indelible scars that were left from the stoning at Leicester. You have scars. Because this is a broken world, every one of you has scars. They may not be physical, although they may be. They're probably mostly emotional scars. How have you responded to your scars? How do you respond to discomfort? How you respond to discomfort will reveal whether you are turning to empty things or turning to the living God. Discomfort reveals the foundation of your life, the true foundation of your life. In other words, discomfort reveals the true source of your joy and your identity. If you are turning to empty things, then discomfort takes away your joy because discomfort takes you away from your source of joy. But if you are turning to the living God, discomfort doesn't take away your joy. Discomfort actually drives you to your true source of joy, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, at every turn in our lives, there are empty things that are vying for our affection. Father, every one of us knows the anger, the fear, the anxiety, the resentment, the bitterness that is produced by turning to empty things. And they demand so much from us and they never deliver what we're really looking for. Father, we confess that that as we are currently, not in the past, but currently turning to empty things, that we are sacrificing people on the altar of that empty thing or that God. We are mistreating our spouse. We are mistreating our children, our coworkers in turning to those empty things. We confess that. And we confess that we're powerless to turn away from those things, that we need your Holy Spirit, that we need you, Jesus, through your Spirit to draw us to the living God. Father, by your grace and your Spirit, would you draw us to the living God where we find not anger and resentment and bitterness, 
But in our discomfort, we find joy because we understand that our joy can't be stripped because ultimately it's in you, Jesus. It's not in these empty things. So Father, would you restore our joy? Would you restore our identity? As we identify those empty things and as we turn from them to you, the living God, that you would fill us with your grace, with your hope, and with your joy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.